It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Tonight on The Readout. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it, because you're sending it to Mar-a-Lago or to wherever you're sending it. And there doesn't have to be a process. If you laughed at the former twice impeached president said you could declassify with your mind, you might have missed that he also said, quote, wherever you're sending it, because we're learning that the DOJ believes Trump still has documents he shouldn't have somewhere. Plus, Putin's back is up against the wall. He's losing and facing dissent from a high ranking insider. And President Biden weighed in with a chilling assessment of the threat to the world. And all the Republicans rallying to Herschel Walker's defense must have known it could get worse. And well, tonight it did. We'll bring you the new reporting. Good evening. I'm Jason Johnson in for Joy Reid. And we begin the readout tonight with another stunning development in the investigation into Donald Trump's handling of government records. New reporting says that even after 18 months, multiple requests from National Archives, a federal subpoena and an FBI search of his Florida estate, the Department of Justice believes the former president still has not returned all the documents he took after leaving the White House. NBC News confirmed reports that the department's top counterintelligence official, Jay Bratt, recently communicated these concerns to Trump's lawyers. It's not clear whether the DOJ has new evidence to suggest he is still holding on to classified material or if it's just a suspicion based on the 48 empty envelopes with, you know, classified markings they found at Mar-a-Lago. But it comes as another report is raising questions about one batch of documents Trump did return before leaving Washington. That being material related to the FBI's 2016 probe and to Russia's links to the Trump campaign. ABC News reports that the batch was in such disarray when Trump gave it back, the DOJ said they couldn't tell which of the documents were the classified ones even a year later. But even more jarring, Trump tried to make the documents public the night before he left office, issuing a declassification memo. It's almost like he knew that he can't just justify declassifying anything he wants to with his mind. And then he was also secretly meeting with conservative writer John Solomon, who was allowed to review the documents. But for reasons that are still not clear to anyone and to the great frustration of Trump and his political allies, none were ever officially released. Joining me now to discuss all of this is John Brennan, former CIA director and MSNBC senior national security analyst, and Charles Coleman, former prosecutor and MSNBC legal analyst. Uh, it, Charles, I'll start with you. I, I, just, I just want to get into the legal parts of this because this is the thing that always seems crazy to me. If the federal government says, give me what's in your pockets, and you don't give them what's in your pockets, why can't they just arrest you? Like, just, just it, it, explain this to me like I'm six. Why can't the Department of Justice just arrest Donald Trump right now for not turning over documents that he has no right to have at this particular point? Explain that to me. Well, Jason, that's a very straightforward question. I'm going to do my best to give you a straightforward answer and you and all the viewers who may be wondering the exact same thing. The answer is probable cause. 
the DOJ and Merrick Garland would have to be able to articulate with reasonable certainty that a crime has been committed by the fact that this individual has these documents in their possession or that they know with great certainty that he likely still has something left. And I think that the DOJ is proceeding very carefully about making those allegations in the court of law before they know with with a higher level of certainty that that is the case. But that's the issue. The issue is that they need to be able to establish probable cause that a crime has occurred. And at this point, they don't necessarily know that they can do that or they don't feel confident in their ability to do that. And they're not necessarily certain which of the numerous violations that we've seen so far that they're looking to charge Donald Trump under. And so because of that, that's likely why we have not seen an arrest or something move forward with respect to an indictment and prosecution of Donald Trump. It is about deciding where there is the strongest aspect of probable cause and to what law they want that to apply. I insist that if I left my job at Verizon, Walmart, or Chipotle with bank records and didn't bring them back, I'd probably be in handcuffs right now. But that's fine. Former Director Brennan, here's the other question that I have, and this is what always occurs to me when we talk about this story uh, that's been going on for several weeks now about all these documents. The fact that Trump had these documents, some have been turned over, some we believe he still has. What is the sort of range of dangers that the United States and our allies' security apparatuses are in right now because we don't have an accounting of all sorts of classified and possibly semi-classified material. What is the ongoing danger we're facing right now because of these shenanigans with the former president? Well, Jason, it's clear from the photos and from the reporting that's come out is that uh, these documents at Mar-a-Lago that were illegally moved, retained there, Um, contains some of the most highly sensitive, highly restrictive intelligence that the U.S. government holds. It's unknown what exactly is in those documents, but when I was in government, I know what some of those programs involve, some very sensitive, sensitive programs. And so there could be some very exquisite, sensitive technical collection systems or human sources that provided us insight into what an adversary is doing, or what's going on uh, somewhere around the globe that has put these uh, assets, human as well as technical, at potentially great risk, which is why it is incumbent upon the intelligence community and the FBI to do as thorough an investigation as possible so that they can take measures to mitigate whatever damage or danger there is out there right now. But the fact that Trump and his lawyers continue to proceed with all of these delaying tactics really has prevented the FBI from doing the investigation, I think, that is necessary in order to protect our national security interests. You know, I got to say, you know, Charles, there appears to be a rift uh, going on right now, uh, according to New York Times. So the outreach from the Department of Justice prompted a rift among Mr. Trump's lawyers about how to respond. One camp counseling a cooperative approach that would include bringing an outside firm to conduct a further search for documents and another advising Mr. Trump to maintain a more combative posture. The more combative camp, the people briefed on the matter said one out. Charles, here's here's the issue that I have here. You said that this requires sort of probable cause and he, he went with the camp that's decided to be more combative. We already know that these are documents that he didn't necessarily have the right to have. We already know that these are documents that he misplaced and did not use properly. They say that some of them came back in such damage and and confused form. We didn't even know what was what. They were covered with, you know, Big Mac stains and, and coffee stains and everything else like that. All this kind of nonsense. Isn't there something where 
either former President Trump or any of his allies who may have also seen this information can be held accountable for just damaging national security records. Like, I, I don't understand why we're having this conversation about how he gets to decide when he wants to come in and answer to laws that would immediately apply to the rest of us. Well, that's an interesting question, Jason, and it reminds me of something that I learned early on in law school some several years ago, and that is the law is what is what is boldly asserted and plausibly maintained. I'll say that again. It's the law is what is boldly asserted and plausibly maintained. And it is very clear that based off of the competing Trump camps of lawyers, that they are making some really bold assertions around Trump's uh, ability to have these documents in his possession. And they believe that through the courts, whether it takes a day, a month, a week, a year, or however long, that they are going to be able to plausibly maintain that. And so I think that's where they're hanging their hat. That's where you're seeing this take place. The danger, and, and you hit the nail right on the head, is that at some point, particularly for those people who are in the know and know factually that Donald Trump had things in his possession that he was asked to turn over by the National Archives and then asked to turn over by the FBI and that he did not turn over to the Department of Justice, the danger is that at some point those individuals do become liable, which is why, if you notice, there has been a reticence on behalf of his attorneys throughout this entire process to make hard and fast commitments as to what was allegedly declassified, if anything, and or uh, commit to the fact that Donald Trump no longer has any of these documents in his possession, because they know that making those representations, especially for those people who may know otherwise and be informed as to otherwise, that has actual penalties and consequences for them as well. Former Director Brennan, so one of the things that I think is also overlooked sometimes in the far right response to this, and sometimes the public at large doesn't recognize, Trump owns a lot of properties, right? It's it's not just Mar-a-Lago. He he also owns the Trump Tower penthouse. He owns the Trump National Golf Club in Bedminster. He owns the Trump Park Avenue. He has a lot of properties all around the country, and he owns hotels that are outside of the United States. From a security perspective, do all of those properties need to be locked down at this point? I mean, do they all need to have yellow tape around them? Because it's very likely in the weeks and weeks and weeks, almost at this point, 18 months of, of stalling that Trump has done, he might be moving packages back and forth. And we could be playing whack-a-mole for years as they continue to possibly sell these documents or have them in the hands of individuals who would be a danger to national security. Well, Jason, in many respects, it's it's a nightmare uh, because we know that Donald Trump never believed that government rules and regulations and policies right. and practices applied to him. He would just do what he wanted to do. Also, it is my clear understanding that the security practices that usually govern the handling of very sensitive classified intelligence at the White House, basically those practices were abandoned during his administration. It's clear from the, the way that these documents were just intermingled with other things when the FBI was able to retrieve them, that there was no practice whatsoever in terms of trying to understand you know, the, the, where the documents are and what records uh, there might be. So, uh, and we know that these were found at Mar-a-Lago, but I think your point is a very apt one, which is what else might be out there, not just at Mar-a-Lago, but also in some of these other properties that Trump owns. That's why I know that the intelligence community is really trying its very best to get as much insight as quickly as possible into the range of documents, the intelligence that might have been exposed and compromised, because, as you pointed out earlier, you know, many aspects of our national security might be hanging in the balance. Charles, I want to I want to make sure that we we hone in on this as well, because 
of the sort of inappropriate and unprofessional and, quite frankly, dangerous, as former Director Bridges pointed out, way in which these documents have been handled by the Trump administration. There is a, a need for haste on the part of the DOJ. Um, is there any sort of concern that this absolutely unnecessarily, and I will say cautious, borderline cowardly approach to prosecuting this president continues to open the door for other people in his administration to abuse these former documents. Because it seems to me that the longer this takes, the more emboldened they are and the less likely we are to have them turn over additional documentation, let alone the continued risk that we might have. I think that may be a little bit of a reach. I think that people who may try to assume that level of cover not being Donald Trump and having the resources that Donald Trump has at his disposal are taking a very serious gamble and are really testing the DOJ in a way that I would not advise. I won't even advise Donald Trump to test the DOJ in the way that he is. You know, the story won't be told until we see what happens with Merrick Garland. And that's really where we will see how methodical or in your to use your words, how cowardly the DOJ is is doing uh, and proceeding in this way. You know, a lot of times with prosecutors, one of the things that we have to understand is that it is unusual for us to have this amount of insight into any investigation that the federal government is conducting in a criminal matter. We usually do not even know this. Uh, and, and, and in this case, there's only but so much that we do know. I only say that because there are years that investigations go on. And in this case, it's going to it's going to take until the conclusion of the matter before we know the full story about what exactly DOJ and Mary Garland are doing. Thank you, Charles Coleman. Director John Brennan is staying with me. And up next on The Readout, President Biden's chilling warning about Russia and nuclear weapons using that word Armageddon. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Last night, President Biden delivered a dark warning about the state of the world. During a Democratic fundraiser, he said that the world hasn't been this close to nuclear Armageddon since the Cuban Missile Crisis. The disturbing assessment comes as Vladimir Putin and his allies continue to dangle the prospect of nuclear war in Ukraine. Last week, the Russian-backed Chechen leader casually urged Putin to use low-yield nuclear weapons in Ukraine after weeks of Russian defeats and protests at home. Senior Biden administration officials continue to say that Russia's nuclear posture hasn't changed. Biden's comments, while terrifying, come as Russian forces continue to suffer losses in the South and the East. Just yesterday, Ukrainian forces recaptured six settlements in the Russian-occupied Kherson region. 
The Russian-installed puppet leader of that region posted a four-minute video message criticizing, quote, generals and ministers for their failures and suggested that President Vladimir Putin's close friend and defense minister should consider killing himself. Yes, he was that specific. He had another public humiliation. Two Russians, fleeing their country to avoid military service, landed their boat on a small Alaskan island and requested asylum in the United States. Sarah Palin could see them from her house. Thousands of Russian men have fled the country since Putin called up 300,000 of them for military service. According to the Washington Post, a member of Putin's inner circle voiced disagreement directly to the Russian president in recent weeks over his handling of the war. Late this afternoon, Ukrainian authorities discovered yet another mass grave containing 180 bodies near the recently recaptured town of Lyman in eastern Ukraine. Back with me is former CIA Director John Brennan, and joining me is Nayar Haq, former senior State Department advisor and former White House senior director under President Obama. Nayar, I will start with you on this. The last time I heard somebody in their 70s talk about Armageddon, it was Stephen Tyler telling me to not close my eyes and I didn't want to miss a thing. When the president of the United States uses those kinds of terms, how dangerous is that for allies and other people in the world to hear? That, that's not we're in danger. He literally harkened back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Is that something that the White House and other spokespersons are going to need to walk back? Or is it something that they want to stand behind him in order to encourage people to see how dangerous this war is? Yeah, I, I'm still shocked, Jason, that we are now living with the threat of nuclear war. And I thought this was something that boomers were supposed to already have solved for us, among other things. Um, but the threat of mutually assured destruction is actually a doctrine of nuclear deterrence, meaning it's a reminder that if you launch a nuclear weapon, someone is likely to retaliate. And that is bad for everybody. And, it, and even though you have these massive stockpiles in the United States and Russia, China, India, also nuclear powers, uh, the idea of, of what can happen uh, as a result of that first use uh, is the problem. And that, that is what President Biden is reminding not just the country and us. He is reminding Putin directly. This is a message to him. There are very limited channels right now for the United States to diplomatically speak to the Russian government. This was a pretty obvious way to remind Putin that there are risks uh, in, involved with his discussion and, and continual raising of the use of nuclear weapons, something actually he has done and tried to normalize since he invaded Ukraine. Former Director Brennan, this is the thing that also strikes me. Putin's rattling his sabers over the use of nuclear weapons. As a practical matter, as a practical matter, how does that in any shape, way, or form align with what his stated goals are? Uh, Putin's goals were to denazify the Ukraine, uh, were to liberate the Ukrainians, uh, liberate Russians who were being trapped in Ukraine and couldn't leave, couldn't get back to their home country. How do nuclear weapons even assist in that goal? Or is he just saying that as a way to sort of threaten and bully the rest of NATO to stay out of the conflict? Well, Jason, it really doesn't help his goals. If his quest is to uh, bring Ukraine into the Russian orbit, he's destroying a lot of Ukraine. Um, and a tactical nuclear weapon certainly would do more along those lines. But it's quite clear that Russia has suffered major setbacks and losses in Ukraine. And the Ukrainians are on a roll right now. And so, therefore, the concern, I think, that President Biden is now stating is that Putin, as he increasingly sees this, I think, as an existential threat to his own survival in terms of president of Russia, might he opt for some 
something such as a tactical nuclear weapon, and as was just pointed out by Nair, that has the potential to escalate rapidly. And so we're all hoping that still he's not going to go down that nuclear route. But I think we cannot be dismissive because he may, in fact, opt for some of these uh, tactics that uh, are not going to advance his military uh, objectives, but he's going to do it as a way uh, certainly after the saber rattling uh, to try to reverse course and reverse his fortunes uh, on that battlefield. Jason, I want to jump in on the back of what John just said and talking about the tactical nukes. That's a very key thing here because those are the short range, uh, very you know localized targeting that that Putin has the ability to impact Ukraine directly without necessarily having it spread to NATO allies or even necessarily the United States. And that goes against what the United States has been trying to do all along, which is to contain the war in Ukraine. We have provided billions upon billions of dollars of military aid and support to the Ukrainians but we have not given them enough to go and take the war uh, to Russia and, and really have this be about the United States going up against Russia. We did not. We wanted to contain it. The idea of a nuclear weapon being used, even in that small, I mean, limited capacity as such a nuclear weapon can be, does bring up that threat that other people will get involved in trying to contain the problem. So, now I want to actually follow up on this because you're, you're talking about, hey, we want to keep the war contained to this particular space. We're, we're, we're hoping that the goal is to help Ukraine sort of recapture territory that has been taken, not for them necessarily, you know, take the war all the way into to downtown, you know, downtown Moscow. But what I'm also seeing, what I'm curious to hear from both of you on this actually is what is the role that the sort of domestic strife in Russia is also playing and what Putin is saying right now and how President Biden is responding. You've got protests in the street of Russia right now. People don't want to do this. You've got uh, soldiers fleeing. You've got uh, examples. We've got reports now of, of, of Russian soldiers in a panic. And in some cases, Ukrainian residents saying they're hiding Russian soldiers in their homes who don't want to fight this war. With the war being as unpopular as it is back home in Russia, will the domestic strife perhaps lead to Putin backing up. First, Nayara, and then uh, former Director Brennan. Well, that's some of the logic behind even the sanctions regime, right, is to tighten the grip, uh, isolate Russia enough from the rest of the world that there is an economic impact. But the people are the ones who face that economic impact. The oligarchs have still been able to largely get out of the country, even if they've lost access to their yachts and fancy homes in Miami. But the challenge that we end up seeing is that Russia's uh, fell prey to Putin's propaganda, right? Largely controls the media space. The Catholic Church also aligned, rather the Orthodox Church, aligned with Putin in favor of this continued invasion of Ukraine. So we were seeing numbers like 70 percent of the population supported this until— they had to send their children off to war, right? So that is where when you start seeing drafts implemented, and we saw this in the United States, imperial ambitions get checked. I, I would venture to guess that if the United States had a draft rather than an all-volunteer army, as we do right now, we would have seen something different play out in Iraq and Afghanistan as well. Uh, and former Director Brennan, how do you think the sort of domestic strife and pushback and, and you know, the, the, the jailing of, of, of opposition activists and everything else like that that's being heightened now in Russia, how do you think that is going to impact or could it impact um, uh, Putin's rhetoric and the continuation of this war? 
Well, unfortunately, Jason, Putin doesn't seem to be affected much by the anti-war sentiment that is rising in Russia. And I do think it's going to create some additional problems for him. He is much more sensitive to criticism from his right wing. Those who are advocating a much stronger uh, push in Ukraine and uh, encouraging him to adopt uh, stronger tactics to include uh, using tactical nuclear weapons. Putin doesn't like being perceived as weak. Um, And I I am concerned that those right-wing advocates of war in Ukraine are the ones that have his ear and maybe pushing him in a direction to double down. Uh, I do hope that there's going to be the anti-war activists in in Russia that are going to continue to let their voices be heard as a way to try to get some type of rational decision-making in the Kremlin, which has been absent up until now. Director John Brennan and Nair Hawk, thank you so much for joining us on The Readout tonight. Still ahead, after weeks of gut-wrenching testimony, jurors in Connecticut are now deciding how much Alex Jones owes for the lies and abuse endured by families of Sandy Hook shooting victims. Senator Chris Murphy joins me next. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The midterms are less than five weeks away. Get registered. And the fight to elect candidates that support gun control measures could not be more important. We've had more than 500 mass shootings already. And this year, this year, that's why Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy and California Governor Gavin Newsom have launched an effort to raise $1 million for seven Democratic candidates in competitive races in the hopes of boosting the Democratic majority and taking on the gun lobby. Senator Murphy has been committed to fighting gun violence since the Sandy Hook massacre in his state in 2012. Parents of those murdered elementary school children have not only had to deal with their tragic loss, but with relentless trolling and harassment from people who believe that the shooting was a hoax, thanks to a years-long campaign by Alex Jones. Jones finally faced repercussions for his actions this summer when a jury ruled that he owed the parents of a Sandy Hook victim $45 million. And the jury is now deciding what he owes to the relatives of eight other victims. They went home for the night, but will continue deliberations next week. Testimony from those family members has been, say the least, gripping and saddening. Thing to lose a child. It's quite another thing when people take everything about your boy who is gone and your surviving child, and your husband, and everything you ever did in your life that is on the internet, and harass you. It's just so hard to go see 
your seven-year-old child's headstone, to hear that people were desecrating it and urinating on it and threatening to dig it up. I, I, don't, I don't know how to articulate to you what that feels like. Jones testified earlier in the trial that he's done apologizing to the family members. Joining me now is Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. Um, Senator, it's great to speak with you. And I, I always, these things are always personal first before they're political. How do you actually feel when you talk to these parents who weren't just victimized first by having their children shot? but have been victimized for years by Alex Jones. I mean, do, do, when, you're, when you're done talking with him, does it leave you enraged? Do you feel satisfied that now Alex Jones is facing some consequences? What, what are the personal feelings you tend to have when you think about this every day? I mean, this is this is personal to me on two fronts. First, you know, so many of these families from Sandy Hook are close friends of mine. Um, you were just um, putting on the screen um, uh, Mark Barden, uh, who's a great personal friend. Um, it's also personal to me because I've got two young kids as well who go to you know public elementary and middle school every day, and you know they have to think about things in those schools and those classrooms that other kids, um, uh, you know, previous generations didn't have to think about just surviving right. the day. So I'm furious. I mean, that's my my basic emotion here is um, real fury at Alex Jones for putting these parents through this misery. Many of these parents have had death threats. Uh, some have had to move several times in order to uh, flee the harassment, but also fury at you know my colleagues. We obviously took a big step forward this year on um, making some down payments on gun safety initiatives, but we have a long way to go. So, you know, these are all very close personal friends of mine in Sandy Hook and the fact that they're being victimized over and over and over again is just heartbreaking and enraging. So uh, you're going to take the fight uh, to the public. You're out there, you're raising money for congressional candidates, for Senate candidates, people in tight districts in order to raise awareness and keep people paying attention to the issue of gun violence. I I'm curious, when, it, when, when you talk to people out in the street, when you're talking to the pollsters, when you're trying to help these fellow Democrats win their seats or retain their seats, where has gun violence sort of fallen? It seems like publicly all we talk about is abortion, but gun violence still remains a day in, day out issue for many people. So is it still a top two or three issue? Or are you trying to remind people, hey, by the way, in addition to abortion rights being taken away from you, gun violence is an ever present issue that needs to control or influence your vote? No, it's a good question, but the answer is pretty simple. It is absolutely a top two or three issue. The polling backs that up. Obviously, every parent out there um, you know, thinks about this when their kids go to school and they're gratified by the progress that we made, but they know it's not enough. So you know, this fundraising campaign that we're running today through the night, um, folks can go to the NR8.com uh, to donate to these eight candidates. It's uh, about trying to build on our progress. We uh, beat the NRA for the first time in 30 years years this summer, but it wasn't enough. And the NRA wants to come after those of us right. who voted for this legislation. They want to repeal the bill that we passed. We've got to um, hold to the progress. That's why we've picked eight candidates um, to support, eight campaigns that are going to be vital to growing the gun safety movement. And that's why we're asking people to support these campaigns uh, this evening to try to make sure that we send a message to uh, the NRA, but also all these families that are out there grieving that um, we are going to take this issue, um, run on it, win on it, and then legislate on it. 
You know, it's so easy, and I, I try to avoid it both, uh, both as a host and also as a political scientist. I try not to prognosticate too, too much, right? We're still a month out. There's a lot of things that can happen in these midterms. But as an experienced politician, as someone who people are probably seeking advice from as you're going out and raising money, what is something that frightened or discouraged or concerned Democratic voters and independent voters out there need to hear right now? They're looking at polling numbers and they're like, oh my gosh, we don't know if it's going to be a red wave or a blue wave or a purple wave. What do you want people to know about the importance of their vote in the next 30 days, no matter where they are in the country in relation to this issue? Well, I mean, right now there is no way to capitalize on this bipartisan coalition without Democrats in charge of the House and the Senate, right? What we discovered this year is that there actually is um, a bipartisan group, which comprises of all Democrats and a handful of Republicans that can pass gun safety measures. I think in the next Congress, we could um, pass universal background checks, but that can only occur if Democrats control the House and the Senate. Why is that? Well, because uh, the majority of Republicans are going to still oppose these measures. And so if a Republican is the Speaker of the House or a Republican is the Senate president, they are not going to call these bills up for a vote because it divides their caucus. A Democratic Senate and a Democratic Speaker of the House, they are going to put these bills on the floor. And we are going to continue to be able to pass bills um, that can get some Republican support. So I know that's in the weeds, but for folks out there who really want um, you know, to tighten our gun laws, to protect our kids in schools, that will not happen if Republicans right. win control of the House and the Senate. And everybody needs to know that as they're going out and making their choices. Every single vote is going to matter. Can't afford to give up either of the houses. Senator Chris Murphy, thank you so much for what you're doing for the Sandy Hook families and for what you're doing to families across America. Thank you. Who won the week is still ahead. But first, one month until the midterms and Republicans are in full panic mode about the disastrous candidacy of none other than Herschel Walker. Plus, Biden's big move on marijuana and more. We'll be right back. You know, things are bad, like real bad Michael Jackson, when your own son reignites a family beef on Twitter. That's the case with Georgia anti-abortion Senate candidate Herschel Mushmouth Walker, who was denying a report that he paid a paid for a former girlfriend to have an abortion and that the woman is the mother of one of his children. That's not where this scandal ends, though. The woman has now told The New York Times that Walker also urged her to terminate a second pregnancy two years later. She says they ended their relationship after she refused. Here's what Senator Raphael Warnock had to say about his Republican rival scandal play campaign. We have um, uh, seen some disturbing things. We've seen a disturbing pattern. And it raises real questions about who's actually ready to represent the people of Georgia in the United States Senate. Wait, you mean blatant political hypocrisy can actually carry consequences in today's Republican Party? According to CNN, Walker's Senate campaign cut ties with its political director on Wednesday for reportedly leaking to the press. It also appears that Georgia Republicans read the tea leaves around Herschel a long time ago. The Washington Post reports that top GOP operatives were concerned about Walker's past when he considered running in early 2021. Joining me now is Teray, host of the new show Masters of the Game on the Grio, and Democratic strategist Atima Amara. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Teray, I will start with you. We haven't talked in a while. I, I, I just I have to ask this because this is this is just fascinating to me. 
as an African-American voter, when you see the Republican Party put forth a candidate like Herschel Walker, what does that say? What does it say that of all the qualified, intelligent, capable Republicans that you could have put up for that office in Georgia? They picked a non-eloquent African-American man who has a history of being physically abusive to women and not taking care of his kids. Well, Jason, I'm not sure why we would start the conversation assuming that there are intelligent and reasonable black Republicans in the state of Georgia at all. This may be <laughs> the best person that they have for the job. Look, I, 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 I find it hurtful and offensive that he has not raised many of his children. Uh, you know, obviously the hypocrisy around abortion is troubling. But we don't even need to go into the personal stuff to understand that Herschel Walker should not be in the most exclusive club in America. He does not have intelligent ideas. He does not have an effective way of expressing them. And he represents to me a fairly frightening development in a sort of post-Trump politician who thinks that just with bluster, gaslighting and personality and some resume items from long ago, that that alone should be enough to elect him. Does this man have the ideas and the brain power to actually be an important and valuable member of the Senate? All the evidence so far points to no. Atima, from from uh, from just a PR consulting standpoint, right? You're in the war room right now. Herschel Walker has come in. He's mumbled through a rallying speech. And now it's up to you all to try and come up with the language, with the language to help bail this man out. It's Georgia. He's going to get 42 to 44 percent of the vote no matter what. But what actually could he say at this point to rationalize or, or somehow justify this past behavior and square it with the policy positions that he has mumbled so far since running for office? I mean, it's just quite frankly too hard to grasp, right? Like he could just own up to all of it, quite frankly. And honestly, given the way Republican voters are, which is having lower expectations of their candidates when it comes to being consistent on abortion, consistent on not abusing women, consistent on, well, actually having thoughtful comments to put together with a flashlight. I, I don't quite <laughs> frankly think that they're concerned about that. I mean, on our side of the aisle, Democrat, that's what we're concerned about with our candidates. But here, I think they thought they could get away with a 100% name ID that he has from being a football hero in the 80s and considering low expectations of voters and probably the fact that Herschel Walker in their minds is a manifestation for their voters of what they think of black men, quite frankly, uh, this is what we have. When you're trying to elect someone who's as about as eloquent as a stirred bowl of alphabet soup, I don't think you really care uh, about what they're actually going to represent to the people. Speaking of which, I want to play you guys some sound from a debate last night in Arizona where Blake Masters basically gave up the game about the big lie and what that means. And the team, I want to get your thoughts on the other side. Joe Biden's absolutely the president. He's duly sworn and certified. He's the legitimate president. He's in the White House. Was that election stolen was it rigged in any way, shape, or form enough to keep Donald Trump out of the White House? I suspect that if the FBI didn't work with big tech and big media to censor the Hunter Biden, or the Hunter Biden crime story, yeah, I suspect that changed a lot of people's votes. I suspect President Trump would be in the White House today if big tech and big media and the FBI didn't work together to put the thumb on the scale to get Joe Biden in there. But not vote counting, not election results. Yeah, I haven't seen evidence of that. 
So, Atima, in 2021, Blake Masters said that the 2020 election was stolen. Now that he's actually on stage and running for Senate, he's changed his mind. I'm not shocked at the hypocrisy. I'm wanting from a strategy standpoint, what why would a Republican back away from a lie that has galvanized their voters, even if it's not true, uh, 30, 30 days before the election? He's running against a well-liked Democratic incumbent. Uh, he's the underdog, and he's definitely drowning with independents. Um, and independents are already seeing him as a flip-flopper when it comes to abortion. He had on his website, total ban, that all of a sudden it disappears. What are you talking about? I don't have any problems with abortion. People could, it's a state's, whatever, it's a state's rights issue. <laughs> and I think it's the same thing here, right? With the 2020 election, I think he knows that there is a group of independents who uh, don't like any of the, the things that happened with Trump in January 6th and, and thinking that the election, especially in a state that recounted number of times, that the election was certified and Biden won Arizona. They don't want to hear that. So I think he is trying to make his bid for independence right. and try and catch up. Uh, and an October surprise that was uh, a lot less disturbing than Herschel Walker's eight million new children. Uh, to Ray, we just <laughs> found out that the president of the United States has said, hey, we are going to uh, vacate some crimes and some felonies. Biden has, Biden has pardoned all those convicted on prior federal charges for marijuana or convicted in the District of Columbia of simple marijuana possession. This is a huge deal, right? Six, 7,000 people are directly affected by this. What do you think this means about the Biden administration's overall attitude um, about drugs? Do you think that this is a sign of, of falling towards sort of an overall legalization or is at least just a realization that their criminal justice stance uh, was outdated and they needed to do something to, to galvanize young voters? I think there is a possibility of federal legalization on the horizon. This is definitely a step toward that. Many of us have long felt it doesn't make sense that I believe it's 26 states now where marijuana can be sell, sold legally, can be consumed in public legally, and yet people are in prison over this. Now, look, Joe Biden is doing what he can on this issue so far. He says he's also speaking to governors because really the problem is a state issue. I believe we have something like 40,000 people right. in, pre in state prisons on this issue. So this is, again, from the left, we're like, good, Joe Biden, but we wanted more, right? Like right. 6,500 people, like solid, and you've done what you can, uh, but you we, we wanted more. Look, the only way that we will ever get rid of the underground market for marijuana right. is to create an above ground legal market that will make the right. underground risky market too risky. Right. Teray and Atima are sticking around to give us their picks for who won the week. That's next. Don't miss it right after this break. The moment you realize just got paid, it's Friday night, and it's time to play Who Won the Week? <laughs> Teray and Atima Amara are back with me. We will begin with Atima, Who Won the Week? Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson on her second day on the court arguing on the um, uh, Merrill v. Milligan um, coming from Alabama, this case that will determine what's left of the Voting Rights Act. And she affirmed that the 14th Amendment, on which they're arguing that you can't consider race because it's unconstitutional, she said it actually can be considered uh, as, uh, in a race-conscious way because that is what the framers intended that it should happen to protect the rights of emancipated Black people that were being terrorized 
in the South uh, right after the Civil War during the Reconstruction era. So uh, her doing that through originalism in the conservative space and their view of the 14th Amendment. She wins every single week that she's on that court battling against a lot of people who are not quite qualified uh, and shouldn't be there. Teray, according to you, who won the week? That was a great choice. I wish I thought of that. But the show that is dominating culture right now is Dahmer. Evan Peters and Ryan Murphy have come up with an extraordinary show that just really gets into you. Look, I felt depressed after watching it and I thought it was just me. And then I read an article about how this show is making a lot of people depressed. It is a deep look at what happened with Jeffrey Dahmer. And I want to point out a lot of people are like, you know, man, that's hard to watch because a lot of black people get killed in that. Yes, totally true. However, there are a lot of black heroes in this who are standing up to Dahmer, standing up to the system that is ignoring them. Uh, Niecy Nash's character is there's a Jesse Jackson character. Just got to say this quick. Uh, if you don't want to be depressed, there's other things you could also watch. I think who won the week is Uvalde school uh, district that got rid of all their police officers to Ray and Atom, uh, Tima Amara. Thank you so much for joining us. And that is tonight's readout. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Monday.com.